welcome to the Awoken Word Podcast. I'm your host, Anu Drastogi. On today's episode, I've got for you Pradeep Singh Nagra. This conversation actually came up quite quickly with four hours notice. Pradeep got back to me and said, hey, good to meet tonight. And it was a cold Friday night and we said, yeah, let's do this. For many of you, Pradeep's name will already be familiar. And with the recent release of the feature film Tiger, which is based entirely on his story and his life, and it's starring Mickey Rourke, Prem Singh, Janelle Parrish, and Michael Puglesi, I think with the release of this film, it's really going to elevate not only him and his name and his story, but a broader conversation. And that conversation is one that we touch on a number of aspects of today. I found Pradeep to be incredibly responsive, very humble and soft-spoken. He also has a very clear sense of self. We talk a lot about the ideas of representation in the broader social and societal narrative that we have, and we talk about it in terms of the racialization and the othering of people as well. Pradeep's also kind to share a lot about his early life. We hear a lot about the bigotry and the challenges that he faced early on in his life. We also hear a lot about the history that he shares with us about the Sikh community in particular, going all the way back to World War I. We talk a lot about racism. We talk a lot about political and human polarization. We also learn some interesting things about the backstory on this film, Tiger, And I was actually quite surprised to hear some anecdotes about the fact that he himself didn't even know that they were using his real name for his character in the film until he just happened to show up on set one day by surprise. You'll also hear a little bit more about Pradeep and some of the interesting fame around him and his beard. He's been named amongst the 1,000 most influential beards in pop culture. He's on the front cover of the Great Ten history textbook. So he's actually quite a a well-known and interesting man. Pradeep also closes off the conversation with a really interesting thought on how we can go about making a change in this world quite quickly, actually, in terms of changing the curriculum in our school system and how we can do so one year at a time. I really enjoyed this conversation with Pradeep. So without further ado, I give you Pradeep Singh Nagra. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. And we are here live with Pradeep Singh Nagra. Pradeep, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure being here. I'll I'll be honest, I was a little bit surprised when I actually reached out to you to hear back as quickly as I did, because I didn't realize that there was an entire film about you that was just about to release. From what I know of you, obviously, uh, you know, a successful boxer, I know that you've taken on all sorts of adversaries inside and outside the ring, and you've had quite an amazing journey. And it's interesting that just one stop on that journey is this feature film with 
Mickey Rourke and Prem Singh playing you, uh, Janelle Parrish from Pretty Little Liars, seeing that whole story kind of come together. So there's a lot that I guess leads up to that moment. So I'd really like to know, let's park boxing aside for just a moment. Who are you? Where did you grow up? What led you to that moment when you discovered boxing? Sure. So I'll probably do what I call my cheat sheet here. Um, many people are asking me about having a website and stuff like that. And, and I think I put uh, humanitarian, historian, athlete, and advocate. Um, so I think those four words can probably create a framework of, of who and what I am. And um, and it's probably through those lenses that uh, I create and continue to create my life experiences. I say that because... Um, the mindset of an athlete is a lifetime if you really want to apply it. And we should because that's just our emotional, physical well-being piece. And so that's where the athlete piece is absolutely critical as part of that role. Advocate, spiritual foundation, theology, civic responsibility, all combined around that framework and word of advocate. Uh, and and what our responsibility is uh, as humans and towards humanity. And um, uh, historian, I'm fascinated by history. Um, I also think we have a responsibility of history. Hmm. Um, we also got to recognize that history has been predominantly written by uh, dominant cultures and groups and predominantly men. Um, and so that is not necessarily always both inclusive or accurate. Right. And uh, so sometimes it's a responsible and incumbent for us to, when we're speaking about being so-called historians, to have the critical reflective uh, piece. Uh, sitting here um, in, in studio, uh, we sit uh, as settlers. Um, and again, because the history that was taught uh, to me growing up here uh, in Canada and as a Canadian was that it was founded by two. And I kind of joke, especially around the Canada 150 anniversary, that uh, something had to be lost to be found. And so mm. Canada was never missing. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, yeah. And f so it was never found. And by two, and you can't say two because uh, there was already people, our Indigenous community, um, original peoples of, of this land. And so... Even when I do, and I have discovered, for example, even just um, um, the history of, of the Sikh community and the Hindu community and the Muslim community, because it was almost one larger geo-ethnic political community. Right. Um, history in Canada um, and the work I do with the Sikh Heritage Museum of Canada, uh, I've always said that I don't uh, showcase or celebrate Sikh history or culture. I celebrate Canadian history through a Sikh lens. Um, and then also knowing that lens is also based on us being settlers on the Indigenous land and making sure I can honour and recognise that as well. And then the part of uh, humanitarian um, speaks to uh, another piece. So it's not just because I have privilege and with privilege comes responsibility and advocacy. Uh, we also need to be uh, within a mindset of, of humanitarian work itself too mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I'm a relative sucker uh, for charity <laughs> um, but it's a good reason to be a sucker for uh, right. it's a positive piece and um, I can almost find anything to attach to charity and so whether 
Uh, I enjoy my antique cars, but um, I'm not somebody that's more cute to just be sitting at a car meet in in, in a strip plaza mall and you know, have your lawn chair recited or just standing around. Um, if it's a charity like prostate cancer, I'll take my car. People will pay $5 to get in, to see the cars and enjoy and support charity and it's better use of my car. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's not a space or a place where I won't look to, to, to do that. Uh, uh, you know, God and enjoy, not necessarily enjoy running, but ran and ran for 15 years, ran the Boston Marathon, stuff like that. But I started my running career, so to speak, in marathon running uh, through charity. Uh, it was Canadian Earth Rise wow. Society for the Walt Disney World Marathon. And, okay. Uh, you know, if I'm looking to take my family out socially, I can take them out to a restaurant or I can take them out to see the entire stair climb for charity. Right. Which is a better experience or experiential for everything. And so, so you know, you, you can, if you're looking and you care enough, uh, the humanitarian work doesn't necessarily have to be, and I'm not a huge advocate of some of what we see in the pop culture, for example. And we're in the season right now where every commercial you're going to see is about uh, how can we save racialized kids around the world? Mm-hmm. And if we can only put a goat in their hand, uh, if we can only show them smiling because oh, because they're touching water. Yep. And I'm deeply offended by that stuff. Yep. And uh, and that's not what I'm talking about when I speak humanitarian. It's not like one day, Pardeep, you know, uh, I want to take off three months. And I'm going, you should be taking off f- if, if, for example, within our, my faith community, we actually have a concept around this. It's called Dasvand. And Dasvand means dust is just number 10. Right. Vand means to share. Um, so share a tenth. And that can be a financial contribution, or it should be both financial contribution and time contribution. So I laugh and I said, you know, so that means if I have a 40-hour work week, I should be putting four hours in towards humanity. Right. Okay. I shouldn't have to wait till this five years from now party. If I can do that, I'll love to do that. And that's my humanitarian civic duty I've done in my world or something. And no, no, no. That, 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 that's actually privilege. And that's actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I speak about humanitarian, uh, it's it's really in in the in small everyday places that you have to really be always thinking of that kind of piece. So, wow, you touched on a lot very quickly. I mean, you fleshed out a fairly broad canvas. Like you sound like four different people all in one. You know, which is actually quite remarkable. I'm curious. This is you today. Obviously, these traits would have been in you from the beginning. But, you know, did you grow up in Canada? Like, what was growing up like this kind of led you to being the person that you are today? Yeah, so I'll probably start with the born story. Sure. Uh, and then the growing up and nurturing. Uh, so I was born in the land of the five rivers, uh, Punjab. I always joke to say now I'm living amongst the five Great Lakes. So okay. five has yeah. never been too far away from sure. me there. Um, uh, so predominantly uh, raised and nurtured uh, in Canada. Uh, specifically Ontario, getting more local, Toronto, getting more specific Malton. Um, and uh, boy, uh, you know, we, we opened up this segment in, in the movie is Tiger that we were kind of talking about. And, um, you know, the last four or five weeks, you, you know, as part of the side note stories, uh, oh yeah, I touched base with kindergarten friends. Wow. Right? I just feel like it was just yesterday. It, 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 Malton was such a unique community that no matter where you meet somebody, whether it's professionally, while all the university, because I would go down to university and say, oh my God, 
why are you guys all the way you are? And it's just the Malton ones. Because we could, I could have went to any university, any campus, any given time. And the way that the, the, my friends and colleagues who were from Malton were seen and spoken about or engaged or how we engaged was just uniquely uh, we you can pick that off and and um, hmm. so so we're always close knit. We still are so close knit, and people from other towns, even if they had some friends, say, "Oh yeah, you know, I know some friends." It's not like the Malton experience, right? Um, and and that's special because um, when I'm saying this, and names like Chris Willock, Bobby Solanke, and this and that, a diverse group of friends. Mm-hmm. And yet we just seen each other as one large community family piece itself. Right. And, 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 and for a number of them, you can ask, because I said, oh, no, but you know, dad better be there as well. Right. Right. Because uh, that's, that's how we grew up, right? We grew up within, within uh, it was just not friends. We knew their parents well. They knew us well and stuff. And um, it's an honor. And 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 with some, I joked. I said, "Malta to Hollywood." Don't forget it. So, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, here's a reality check, right? Because uh, I've been asked and shared some of the questions. The seventies mm-hmm. come to the Sick Heritage Museum of Canada. We're very explicit on that wall of the seventies time period. The title of that era from nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty on our time wall, Hey Packy. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces that we show is a Toronto Star article around 1977. Uh, the community uh, was in Nathan Phillips Square, City Hall. And I think the article said in the thousands. Now, you and I, if, if I were to really ask you, and, you know, we were just talking before we got into studio and you're talking about, you know, party became, you, you came around this area around 2004 and stuff like that. Right. And I would, if I were to ask you, separate from a community event, like whether it's it's an Eid celebration, whether it's a Diwali celebration or Vasaki or something, and, and the community generally congregates around that, on any issue itself, have you ever heard of our community being in the two, three thousands for some protest? Oh, no. No. Nothing. Yeah. And, this, and, 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 and so think about the size of the community, not the density it is today. And at that time period, that's how much they, how much in numbers they had appeared, and they had placards and stuff. And and I shared it to the narrative of of Black Lives Matter because that time, South Asian Lives Matter. And in fact, the article speaks to the community getting there, and asking for the resignation of the chief of police of Toronto because the, he was not being able to protect all his citizens, and mm-hmm. and and the South Asian uh, community on a daily basis were being just physically attacked pushed on the subways and everything. And I still today, because it will never leave me, it can't leave me, because it has a visceral traumatic part of it. People are shocked to hear that uh, it was intimidating to leave the house with my family. And the reason being is, dad gets in a car just to do everyday task of a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Go to the mall, take the family out, we're going to the park. Along the way, we have to maybe stop at a gas station, put some gas in. And what happens? Dad gets out of the car and hey, Packy starts. And we're in a catch-22. If dad doesn't respond, 
then they think he's meek mm-hmm. and that he's timid and they're going to ratchet it up. Right. And let's keep scaring the hell out of this guy. And when doing that to dad, you're doing it to the kids inside the car and the wife inside the car. Mm-hmm. If dad decides he's going to kind of throw a little bit back at them, then that will anger them and mm-hmm. equally make them escalate. So they were going to escalate. And it didn't stop there. Because when dad got back in the car, then it was a cat and mouse game on the road where they're cutting us off and putting the brakes on and all that kind of stuff. This was this was a normal, what I call, everyday experience. So it's not that long ago. Not at all. Not at all. And And so as much as I celebrate the spirit of my town, which I still will always, because uh, it will supersede those pieces. It's not within some context as well. So that's the 70s. Um, the 80s, the community is relatively trying to find itself a little bit. And uh, there's some incidents that happen that affects the entire community, uh, the Air India. Right. Um, very unfortunate because um, the community was close because we, because of, because of we're being marginalized by the greater community and, and, and the bigotry was on all of us. None of us were immune. Right. No matter if you're Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, or what have you. And then an event like this happens. And the closest of the community got a little bit ruptured mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, I lost some friends in there as well. Um, and so it was a difficult time because now you're dealing with something. I don't say internal because we're not internal to anything. We're Canadians. But there was some affinity and similarity and experiences and stuff like that that was not as easy uh, to just lean on each other and share with each other and engage each other and support each other. And as our communities continue to to engage, uh, a big event uh, broke nationally. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the turban in the RCMP. Right. And so this, for no right reason, challenged Canada to its core. And Canada was questioning itself. I don't know why, but it was questioning itself. You bring up the the Air India incident, and it's just interesting too, just to, I mean to rub salt on an open wound like and I, I can't recall I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now who was prime minister at that point in time but he actually apologized or expressed to condolence to, to uh to Rajiv Gandhi I guess it was yep. uh, at that point in time when almost the entire passenger list on that flight was Canadian you know and that just because these are a bunch of brown-skinned people it's not even conceivable that these could be our own people Hundred percent. We're we're othered. We're othered at a most vulnerable, tragic time. Like, just think about what that means on the psyche. We're actually right? not too far from the memorial. It's out uh, 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 
on the lake mm-hmm. from here. I, I didn't necessarily expect to kind of go here <laughs> this far and this quickly, but um, there's this report, I guess, that's just been released, and it's called upon extremist elements within the Sikh community, and there's all this question on why now. And I find it just really odd because my experience with the Sikh community is actually fairly long running. I mean, or many of my my family friends growing up, the families have been around, have been Sikh. We've been in and out of Gurdwaras as much as we've been in and out of uh, Mandirs and, and, and any other place. And what my experience has shown me is that the Sikh community in general is amongst the most giving, generous, adaptable, and not just sort of we'll, we'll show up and just mind our own business, but we'll change things for the better in the worlds of politics, in sports, in media. I would say the profile that South Asians in particular in this country have is in large part owed um, to a lot of sacrifices made by, you know, Punjabis in general and Sikhs in, in specific. The the Khalsa, you know, aid the society ones, has yeah. been on the border of Syria, you know, setting up bases in Macedonia, helping Syrian refugees when there's almost no one else there around to help. Organizations in Canada have been partnering with the Aboriginal communities for everything from financial aid to co-celebrating, you know, um, shared humanity and cultures and whatnot. And yet, I think so much focus has been put into the physical identity of being a Sikh between the turban and the beard, that everything that's behind that has almost just completely been ignored. I mean, this this went this went very deep very quickly. I think I'm curious to maybe just kind of step back a little bit because I mean obviously your life experience here has been uh, you know real ups and downs. I mean you've gone through like just the joys of the diversity of the friends and the community that you've been in through to you know being othered and not that long ago. I mean I find in, in Canada in particular we often feel like we're up on this high horse. <laughs> And uh, as if we've reached some post-racial utopia, uh, listen, we are listen. nowhere, nowhere near no, that. Forget about nowhere. Forget about nowhere. Because I was actually asked this question. Uh, hey, party Tiger movie. And from what you experience, where do you think we're kind of, do you think, uh, you know, we're better? We moved. I said, excuse me? That <laughs> was the day after Quebec had put out their uh, their position that someone who looks like me, and presents himself in public like I do with my turban on and stuff, cannot hold the exact same position I'm holding in Ontario as working for the school board in Quebec. That's right now as you and I are speaking. So you want to try telling me about progress? I'm telling you we're going backwards. Because I just told you 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the end of war. Every single picture I'll show you from World War One and Two, and this was a beautiful narrative I was telling people, I said, how brutal the war was, how vicious. Mm-hmm. And you know the lesson that the Sikhs learned in World War One that they emulated in World War II? We're keeping our turbans on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, if and, and you know where we landed in September 1914? In France. Yep. And I said it on K-Ray's <laughs> narrative, and I'll say it on yours. If anybody's listening... To my fellow Canadians and Quebecers and people from France, first of all, you are completely misguided on your concept of neutrality, first and foremost. So you have to deconstruct that because how you're thinking you're applying it, there's no such thing in that work that I do around equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-oppression of the concept of neutral. There's no neutral spaces. 
And so, so you can't just apply this concept of neutrality. Because if you want to today, which you have in France, I ask you to simply look at one of the pictures that I have of Sikhs arriving in 1914 in September, holding the French flag, coming in because Belgium was already taken over and France is about taken over, and we came with nothing more than our turbans on. Where was neutrality then when we actually saved not only your country, your land, but your constitution? The same constitution is now being used against us. And yet, we did that with our turbans on. And to Montreal, because another angle that they're using also is this concept of separating church and state. And again, they're misguided on that concept, because I too agree with that concept. But this is what the concept says and what it doesn't say. Separation of church and state means that the state will not become a religious doctrine. It will not just endorse a faith. It will not become faith-based mm-hmm. state. That's the concept of separation of church and state. It will not become a church. The state will not be a church. What it doesn't say in that separation is that the religious person can never hold a position of state right. or be the head of state. So we have a head of state in terms of the government. We have a head of state in terms of the monarchy in Canada. They both have a faith. Mm-hmm. They are of faith. They made it public. So it's never about that a person of faith can't be engaging in state activities. In fact, it's the opposite of that. There'd be very few people left engaging in state activities nope. if that was the case, right? <laughs> and, then, and, and, and then we know yet, because when, when Quebec got challenged about the cross and the legislature and everything else and uh, all the other symbolism they put out and stuff like that, because they're talking about these religious symbols. And then that becomes to my last piece I need to make sure that I address. The turban is not a symbol, it's an article of faith. So don't use an improper word and verb to describe something mm. that it's not. Right. And try to apply that then in a law form. This is our realities as Canadians. We have to really ask ourselves, not, not like you said, be on this high horse because there's no high horse because, right. because y- you are then just admitting that you have blinders on. Well, I mean, we see this sort of manifest itself in so many ways. I mean, there's a very specific history and current state of the situation with the Sikh community. There's the report that just came out about the incredibly overblown levels of racial profiling, particularly of young black men in Toronto. You've got all sorts of pockets of resurgences of anti-Semitism, you know, white supremacy never really went away. It's, it's still very much there. Like, so all of these, these sorts of things, just the treatment of the Aboriginal community in general. I mean, there's, and it's escaping okay. me, unfortunately, right now, but there's Thunder a Thunder Bay report that just came out. The, yeah, the Thunder Bay report, like absolutely terrible. There's a community just outside of Winnipeg that has been campaigning actively for 30 years to yep. get clean water. I think they've been on a 17-year consistent boil water advisory. Trudeau had even made his way out there, made promises, nothing's happened. And yet we've in that time still bought you know, a $4.5 billion pipeline. We've bailed out other companies. Yeah. We're selling arms yeah. to the Saudis yeah. that are slaughtering you know, innocent Yemenis. But this craziness, it's here. And I find that there's this weird 
denial here that we're not like America. Oh, yeah. The first thing you ask a Canadian, what are you? Our, our, our definition is we're not American, right? That's not the standard by which to <laughs> hold ourselves. Never, never. And, and again, I'll be remiss if I just want any fellow listener to just go on CBC and read the article on the day that they released the report, the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And when they were sharing the stats of the over-representation and risks of blacks at 60% and 70% to you know either be either killed or or subjugated to to, to further um, use of force and stuff like that the most craziest thing and like i said it was not that i already knew about it cuz cuz in the us these exact same types of things were saying cuz they said blacks proportionally in fact don't use drugs proportionally as much as whites do proportionally mm-hmm. statistically and this report the Canadian Human Rights Commission said and in these stats that we just gave you just to let you know that the white people that the police intervened in in the exact same scenario as the blacks and you had this overrepresentation proportionally more had weapons in the exact same scenario mm-hmm and more resisted the police intervention. Right. And yet they were dealt in the exact same situation, being at higher risk factor in terms of the response and higher risk factor in terms of even being present with a weapon. Because the blacks that were at 80%, more whites had weapons than blacks. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else Canadians need to see and hear and, and, and know. I mean, that... that's it the data is there it's clear it's obvious what's interesting though i think we look at i mean in this situation it's the uh law enforcement and to an extent you know biases that exist within the judicial and the prison system but none of these systems exist in isolation of some broader context like we as a culture people when you say a system yeah uh even if you want to claim a wall or a door or whatever, but who either put up that wall, uh, put in those doors, we're talking people. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't say system. I say people. Okay? So you want to say police? That's people. Government? That's people. Uh, these are all people. Uh, and they're and, our people. Oh, yeah. Like yes. we, we all live here yeah, together. They're, they're neighbors. Yeah. Uh, but. And that's the scary part because it's not like they've come up from somewhere and are just working in the police and they left our country after the shift. I've had recently, and I've shared this on, on the last few episodes, I had Dwayne Morgan, who is uh, the godfather of spoken word in the city. He's incredible. <laughs> I know you know if yeah. you know Dwayne. I know Dwayne. Yeah, so Dwayne, uh, um, he came through a, a few weeks ago, and I love the guy. And we had a really intense conversation about, about race. Um, and you're kind of my vantage point on race and also seeing the, the black experience, that, you know, from a quasi periphery. And uh, the things that, uh, you know, you hear people say the way that, you know, a young black man has to navigate the world differently than other people, you know, even even someone like myself, like a black man will have to navigate the world a little bit differently than me. And yeah. I'll have to navigate the world a little bit differently yeah. than the next person. Anti-black racism is, is a different Different piece. It's a we different thing we, altogether. We, we can't just say racism is racism for blacks and South Asians for Sikhs is yeah. identical and stuff. No. Yeah, and as Dwayne pointed out, in, in this country and then on top of that, the Aboriginal community is almost not even in the conversation. Yeah. Like they're just kind of pushed to the sidelines yep. completely. But in that context, it's just uh, – it's interesting. And I think that 
I think that this resurgence of the right, and I hate the the terms left and right because I feel they just put people against each other, but it's the the frame of reference that we're given for now for discussion. And I find just with this rise of populism, uh, you know, the Trumps of the world, the the rise of the right in everywhere from India to Brazil to the to the Philippines to Western Europe. What's happened is this polarization has gotten even more stark. But and the, the crazy people that are out, you know, being um, xenophobic and racist and whatnot, they didn't just show up two or three years ago. Like this has been simmering under the surface for a very long time. And, and I, I, I feel strongly that we haven't been having really good conversations with each other when there are legitimate concerns about stuff. And then things just fester and they go in, in odd different directions. And then they get fanned, the flames get fanned by some crazy narcissistic populist um, and a media that's just making a buck every time you click on that thing that makes you angry and pits you against the next person. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, coming back to the Tiger film, people were asking, and I said, uh, so, uh, you know, a couple of pieces that you were just talking about, if I just expand on a couple of them. One is the microphone has gotten bigger, right? Mm. And so the platforms, uh, it's just huge there. And so uh, people being a little bit xenophobic or, or bigoted, as far as their audience could have been was just maybe the largest they had was around a kitchen table, right? Yeah, yeah. And it stopped there. Today, you don't need a kitchen table. In fact, you don't even need a keyboard because you have this machine in your hand and you can spew to hundreds and thousands. And every single uh, statistical study that's already quickly been done on this phenomenon is carry two stories about Pardeep. Carry a positive, correct, accurate one and carry a negative, bigoted one. And the bigoted one is going to travel further, farther, sure. and get more comments and everything. And so, and so, the crazy piece is is that we are victims of our own appetite, and it's the negative appetite. Because turn on news, so news and media news and papers is mostly driven by negative, right? Not not, not necessarily positive pieces. Uh, one piece. The other piece uh, that you're mentioning was just. Yeah, when do we have spaces for conversation? Because, or is it just, no, I don't like them, or they believe in this, and it's not true, and, or, or what have you. And it's gotten so far that pretty much the the way I've been describing it lately is, sure, if you think that we're going to make progress by you standing on the uh, uh, edge on the street on one side, on the curb, and I'm on the other and we're just going to keep yelling at each other. It's not going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. Not going to bring us any closer. And it's not going to, in fact, you'll never get that time back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Literally. Worse than a waste of time. But the scary right? thing is, even and, that would and, be better than what's actually happening where anonymous people are just yelling at other anonymous no, people. No, no, no. Because that, 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 that's what platforms are giving now behind screens and just on computer and Twitter and stuff like that. I wouldn't even dare to even want to say that's even better than the other piece itself because coming off that piece, if that's how it's physically mani- being manifested. So that's how I am be- behind the keyboard. I'll be anonymous. But if you want me to come out, well, yeah, I, you can technically see me, but I'm on the curve and you be on your curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not going not to move us. Not going to move us as humanity. Not going to move us as Canadians. And we really have to dig in uh, to that piece. And, you know, the conversations I've, I've had um, and need to have it's being even just that much more open um, to let people know 
because it's crazy. A climate has been created where they feel they're emboldened and empowered mm-hmm. to just be and exist and say now because saying all those fate I was always you know not really allowed to or maybe was yeah. not gonna be comfortable I might actually got charged or um, uh, if I went in public the, I would have probably gotten you know a group of people would attack me probably in a mall if I ever mm-hmm. now it's like no one's gonna step in no one's gonna care and it's just almost in a unfortunate way uh, publicly acceptable which, which right. should never never come to that point to be right so yeah. what, what's really strange and just a, a recurrent phenomena a lot of this hatred and this frustration and anger that's directed you know among and between you know people and communities in most cases the people that feel so strongly have never actually come across the person that they hate in everyday life right like someone can say I you know I hate Muslims or I hate Jews or I hate Sikhs. What are they doing? They're coming in here and they're bringing their traditions. You know, we were at a a family wedding on Lakeshore last summer and there was a a guy riding his bike um, as we had the Barat coming down. And I I, were like, the family was kind of dumbfounded because as he's riding by, he just kind of yells out, fucking Hindus. And I think I was more surprised. I was like, wow, this guy's, he's accurate in his racism. Like he knew this is a Hindu wedding and everything, (laughs) but people just don't come across. Like if you actually met, if you had a, if you had a friend or a colleague or somebody that was sick or Muslim or who was atheist, who was any of these things or who was black and you got to know them as a person and you got to understand what's actually common between you and that you actually want to raise your kids in a safe environment or you want to be able to save up for a vacation or that you both enjoy football or whatever the thing might be, you'd start to see that person more as the person than this sort of outward facade. And yet people are so angry at people they don't even know, complete strangers. You, you want to know really why? Because yeah, I've, I've reflected exactly what you're saying and stuff. It doesn't take anything to hate. How so? It's easy to hate, right? Uh, getting to know somebody, <laughs> developing a friendship, and all that, that's effort. Hmm. Okay? That's reflective. That's now seeing where the similarities come. That's requiring a conscious effort, a physical effort, a reflective effort, a critical analysis. Oh, that's interesting. You came. Hmm. What was my experience? Oh, yeah, that's interesting because mine wasn't necessarily. And, and that's how you engage and continue to build and build and build. That's building. Hmm. There's no need to build the hate. I can hate today and there's nothing to build on tomorrow. I just continue my hate. Right? Don't you think the hate also takes effort to oh, no. nurture? No. No. Hmm. No, no. Look, the comment that you just said that was made uh, uh, to to you and your fellow Canadians who happen to be of predominantly of the Hindu faith, uh, and I'm sure there's some other faiths that were there. What that gentleman actually said was, "You effing non-Canadians." Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And so if. Being Hindu is not Canadian. If wearing a turban is not Canadian, because so I, so I'm part of the Dominion Speakers Institute. Uh, I'm featured on the Great Ten History textbook right on the front cover. And if I were to go today to a school and say, "Do Canadians wear turbans?" Kids will always tell me no, and I laugh because I said, "Wow!" So how do I get mm. to be Canadian? 
because because good friend uh, passed away MLA um, I always said big beard great responsibility kind of uh, Munmeet Buller oh my Munmeet gosh Buller, such a small world I was right? just talking to my friend about him and and um, he used to say when he would be talking from my toe and he would point down to the toe of his shoes then he would point to the top of his turban this is a Canadian bro he used to say right and because yeah if, if you were to take a picture from my neck down I can't technically be anything but so called mm-hmm. Canadian then what un-Canadianizes me my pigmentation my turban because this is what was interesting when you when 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 you said you know they they say why do uh, the see they come who's the they yeah right well, yeah. like even in the nuances of how we use language because you know one thing we don't do as Canadians in addition to this thing we say we're not we're not American we never say it is Canadian to wear a turban it is Canadian to go to a mandar. Right? We all say in Canada we allow people to wear turbans. We allow we right? give permission. Right. To, and who's the we and who's the permission and under yeah. what guidelines and in what context and when it's not and when is it too much, right? And that is a big piece. And so I have done and I will continue to do heavy work on this because this is the other piece. In addition to me sharing that I am celebrating Canadian history through a sick lens. I also only speak about people who look like us as settlers and pioneers. Mm-hmm. Only. You know, it's really funny that you say that because there's a, a friend of mine, uh, French, who is this world-class slam poet that came through, and, and he's a white Canadian. And we talked a lot about this idea of, of race. And I think there's something that artists just kind of generally, you, you start to see a more a, a greater sense of commonality amongst people. And we talked a lot about the fact that, you know, I said to him, like, your ancestors came here, did a lot of great things, um, were very innovative, uh, and, you know, made incredible things happen here in this land. But on the road to doing that, decimated an entire civilization of people that had been here for thousands of years, and did all sorts of inhumane and just, quite frankly, just repulsive things to, to the people that already lived here. And, and then I said, look, but my people didn't do that. And yet it would be odd for me to say when my parents came here in the 70s and now I'm here, I am the benefactor of this forest that was cleared by the original settlers that came here. And albeit perhaps, you know, my people didn't do the dirty work in this particular sense, we're here now and we're benefiting from a lot of that. And so I think that we have as much of a responsibility to make sure that we make this better for everybody, right? I, I don't think that the white man's burden is necessarily any greater on at least this 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 um, this angle than perhaps any other immigrant community that comes here, largely because I think that we're complicit to a degree. I mean, there's people like you that are doing incredible things, and there's a lot of people working really hard, but the Aboriginal community is completely pushed aside, nonetheless. And if we're kind of ignoring that and pretending it doesn't exist like we had nothing to do about it well we're now just complicit in the in perpetrating that further so i i just i find it kind of interesting in, in kind of where you were coming at it from well one is we have a responsibility as canadians uh especially in terms of 
the tremendous bleeding through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the report mm-hmm. that puts an onus and responsibility on us as Canadians towards reconciliation. And so we have an individual responsibility and we have a collective responsibility. And across many professions, the report and the recommendations is very specific as well. So for me in the school board, there's there's very specific educational recommendations sure. as well that I'm responsible for. So the path forward, the journey forward for us as individuals and as a country can only be if we want to be just through a path of reconciliation. Anything less is continuing to do damage and marginalize. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the clearing and all that kind of stuff, again, and that's why I talk about the pioneer pieces, I we have images, we know histories, I have artifacts where we worked in the lumber mills, clearing. We worked on the railroads. We worked in cement quarries and mm-hmm. toiled. Um, and so we are just as much nation builders as any other fellow Canadian. Right, right. So I never want to minimize. And that's why when you say uh, whenever you came, you're just a newer settler. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because we actually have a history and a heritage and a lineage in Canada. Right. And I think it's important for us to be able to, first of all, be aware of that and to be able to celebrate it. And the reason being is because all Canadians, our children, fellow children in the educational system, need and have a right to an educational experience that is accurate and inclusive and in part defines who they are through their experiential educational journey and that's what tiger does Mm -hmm. that's i mean we started this whole thing off parking it and maybe a good time to come back to it relatively is that i've said that tiger represents three key things number one representation number two inspiration Mm -hmm. and number three Celebration. And the most important viewer community for me are students. Right. Because as a Canadian, the Tiger story is a Canadian story. Yes, I had to be an honorary American <laughs> in, in the Hollywood version of Sometimes it. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. But I've also said from, from, from uh, as a Sikh that my spirituality is above na- uh, goes above nationalities, and right. so, yeah, so yeah. whether you define that as an American, British person, Canadian, it doesn't take away from the journey that uh, I went through or had to go through, or this individual had to go through. And I firmly believe that when young kids uh, see this movie, that it's part of an inclusive educational experience. And in fact, Cineplex has chosen as one of the top uh, school picks. And come January, uh, they're going to be including as part of their educational programming. And we have an educator's guide attached to it as well. Amazing. And all the different layers that you can engage from kindergarten to 12 
just through Tiger alone. It's just phenomenal. And so this is the minimum that we need to see as part of the representation of Canadian. Because I'll tell you a crazy story. So in addition to what the reality today looks like, and if people see the trailer and they see it on YouTube, you will see visceral, viral comments, even worse than what I experienced in 1999. I experienced it a lot because my life was even threatened and stuff. And it's interesting because they're, they're, they're tied to this piece in the trailer that says, it's not about race or religion. This is about health and safety. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm laughing. I'm going, listen, I'll make it very simple for anybody listening. Did anybody watch Conor McGregor recently fight Mayweather? He had a bigger beard beard than me. Yeah. And he was not even Sikh. Case closed. This was boxing he fought. And this was what I was fighting. And still to this day, just to let you know, I'm still fighting the case internationally. England just changed their rules about seven months ago. Just this last month when Tiger was coming out, it was tabled with the International Amateur Boxing Association. And again, 20 years removed right now. 20 years. They've... They defeated the motion. Okay? And yet, wow. like I said, Conor McGregor. And so I remember I put a post up on the Security Museum Facebook and I said, and I showed pictures of Lennox Lewis with a beard and so many other boxers. And I said, oh, so let me get this right if anybody's listening. I can make millions and wear a beard and box, but to box for free as an amateur, I'm not allowed to have a beard. How does that make hmm. sense in any capacity? But I'll leave that one aside in terms of just that narrative piece itself. So I uh, decided to surprise some uh, movie goers who are watching Tiger in some of the theaters it was playing in. Just randomly, I would show up. I went to one screening, and and afterwards, uh, when some people I said, "Hey, how did you like the movie? Go, Great!" I go, "Cool!" I go, "I'm Tiger." The real tiger. They go, oh, my God. And you almost thought and all that. And then so, you know, wanted autographs, took pictures with them by the poster and stuff like that. And right. so we're at the movie theater. And this is going on. And a little commotion is going on because a lot of people are all kind of clamoring around and getting pictures taken. And so it's, it's a crowd building up. And the crowd included non-tiger patrons that were at the theater. Okay. And they kind of look over and say, what's going on? And someone points out, oh. You see that movie post? You see that thing, Tiger? It's That's the real guy with the movie's based. I'll go, oh, cool. Can we get a picture? Yeah, sure. Come get a picture. And then they look at me, and these are white people. And they said, um, hmm, I, I, I might be interested in watching it. Does it have English subtitles? <sighs> right? <laughs> but then you and I have to sit here and think, we're not naive because – when have we gave an opportunity to fellow Canadians yeah. to have somebody who looks like us as the lead character on a movie poster because that's what the movie's about and it just being in English, which it is. Yeah. And, and it not being a Bollywood film. And not right? Bollywood because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. from Hollywood. Yeah. You mentioned Mickey Warwick and Janelle Parrish and Prem Singh and Michael Pugalesi and R3, R3M Productions. And it's 2018. Wow, yeah. Okay, so do you see the work we have to do and the responsibility we have? Because otherwise, we are failing ourselves as Canadians. We really are. That is interesting. I, I hadn't. I don't think I'd really thought about it that way. It's it's funny. So representation, and you and you said that word. I think is growing up here. I never saw anybody on TV, with the exception of Apu who at all had any sort of 
connection to me. And it was weird when you start to every now and then see like, uh, you know, a South Asian news anchor or maybe some guy would be like, you know, at a hockey game and he'd somehow end up on, on camera or something like that. And it was kind of a big deal. And it's hard for people to understand that how much representation can mean. And I'm, I'm specifically using de- representation here because uh, I saw Riz Ahmed, who I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of. I saw him on, it was either Kimmel or, or one of the late night shows. And he was talking about how he doesn't really consider the word diversity that helpful because it feels like a sprinkle of diversity here and there. It's really about representation. It's about seeing yourself, um, the possibility of you being something more or something else. So it's just incredible. So as Prem was interviewed, the gentleman who played me, and people still were not getting this because I was watching what the reaction was on on major news houses that were interviewing him, and they said, "So what?" And he said, "The journey of party just wanted to be normal," and and they didn't get it because when when you're talking about representation, I've been saying, name any character on any Canadian program right now, any show that's going on and tell me that we don't know somebody who looks like us that can actually, who is actually that in real life. Mm-hmm. A police officer, lawyer, doctor, uh, an athlete, a dreamer, a scientist, bank, whatever role that somebody has being played on TV, a father, uh, a dentist, a child, whatever it is, we are. Yeah. Okay. We're all of and those so, things. So here's the piece on representation and I hear you because I was just in Collingwood and I told everybody, I said, and I took him on this other journey, so I'm, I'm just going to s- just slight backtrack for a sec, sure, because 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 you made an important nuance between diversity and representation. So I said, so you know, this field started off with anti-oppression, and people felt that anti was kind of a negative reference point to start a conversation or a title for somebody in the work that they're doing. So can we kind of move away from it without nobody's permission? It's a dominant group uh, because that's who's going to be speaking the narrative. So they start saying equity. Then equity becomes a little bit too hard for them. And they say, let's do diversity. Then diversity becomes too hard for them. And they use inclusion. And now inclusion has become too hard for them. And, and, and I'm talking about this journey. Just last 18 years shifted and keeps shifting. Now they, 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 they talk about these positions as uh, people. So they even took out inclusion now. So there are people that have the title of doing this work that are known as people, uh, organizational people and culture or people and uh, uh, human resources. Why, right? So why, why, why do you think that uh, – why are they having a hard time with it? What, what is, what's rubbing because people Because they way? never want to be held accountable. And diversity doesn't hold anybody accountable because like you said, it's a sprinkle. And here's what I'll, I'll share about representation and why I use that and intentionally use that. I'll give two important pieces related to that. One is the journey of blacks in, in industry. When the first black leading actress won the Oscar, Halle Berry, mm-hmm. she went up on stage and said, this is not for me. This is for all the black actresses that should have won it before me. Mm-hmm. And she thought that it was going to be a watershed moment in Hollywood. And today, if you listen and had heard any of her narratives recently, she actually thinks it's a mistake. And she's almost at a point of wanting to possibly return it. And the reason being is because since that, 
where she thought it was going to be a watershed. In fact, there's been years it's been the opposite because you because uh, there was the hashtags Oscar so white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Denzel Washington wins it for Training Day, the most brutal role of a black character he played, and he played a lot yeah, of phenomenal he roles. He played a lot of and, yeah. and 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 Halle Berry's was Monsters Ball and was not the best of a role for 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 a person of color. Mm-hmm. And yet. Here is a community that's still in 2018 looking for representation in an industry that they've been part of for more than decades, century. Well, okay, I, I, yeah, and and so then that begs the question to you and me of why I use representation for Tiger. Meaning, I, I don't know, folks. Did anybody recognize that this is literally a first? And that is because I don't know if you know, and it's still online. If anybody wants to read it, when Warsaw Lewalia was here. Uh, for a movie, and I think it was the Beeple Boys. It was being interviewed with China Star, mm-hmm. and they're talking, "Hey, what's happening? What are you up to? What's happening lately?" And by the way, uh, who's your agent? He goes, oh, "I don't have a full time agent." You have a full time agent in Hollywood? Like, what are you talking about? And he says, "I will do Hollywood when Hollywood stops seeing me as an Indian and sees me as an American." Mm-hmm. And why that's important? Because when you just mentioned Apu. And you know what the issue is now is that we find out now to not only was that damn an irritating accent, it was actually being played by a white person. Mm-hmm. And then let's switch that narrative because I've taken away Hollywood for Tiger for us right now because there was nothing. Right. And let's move to the narrative of under Hollywood where if we just talk about TV entertainment, stuff like that. As a father with young children like yourself, I watched my kids – Try watching the kid show for them now. Hey, Jesse. And here they have a sick character, Gordon Brar, born in America, who actually had to go to acting school to learn an accent because he's uh, the only racialized person on that show having an accent. I, this might be the same show that I'm, I'm right? thinking of. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's one of those other kids. Okay, And then you look at the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, drives me nuts. Okay, and so, and so, and so... Believe it or not, signed no legal documents, but only had one ask. That my character not have an accent. And I sit here today willing to support the film. I would be honest and tell you today if my character had an accent, I would not support the film whatsoever, even though I signed off on it. Right. Uh, Because although I didn't write anything on that piece of it, and because I didn't want the film... And the first time that my character says anything, get othered just because how we – because I got nothing against accents. It's just because we have racialized accents as well because there's what we call romanticized accents and you can mimic and think it's actually beautiful sounding to have a French accent or Italian accent and all that kind of stuff. And yet there are other ones that get marginalized. And so I just want to put that out there. But – it was an important piece, um, and it spoke volumes, and it speaks about representation. There's so much nuance in this. So the story of black representation in, in Hollywood, and let's just focus on Hollywood um, for a moment, is not that blacks are not represented, because they're actually everywhere in, in, in film and whatnot. The nuance there is that they're not represented across the spectrum of all the different people that they actually are. They are mothers and fathers living in the suburbs. They are accountants. They are athletes. They are rappers. They are also janitors. They are also school teachers. Um, all, all, a lot of the time that I spent, you know, working um, 
uh, or at least going back and forth for meetings uh, in, in the U.S., I, I was just always just amazed with just how large the black middle class is in America and how they're just like every other American. But I don't see that on TV and in the movies consistently. It's always playing the villain or the athlete or the gangster or the hustler or whatnot. And so in, in that case, it's not just representation just to be visible. It's representation to be visible across the entire, you know, sort of human experience that they have. Yeah. And, and I've never seen representation as anything less than that, because that's what diversity would just say is that we have, but representation means, mm. uh, Exactly what you said in terms of the accuracy of who uh, they are as Americans or who we are as as right. Canadians, and and this was my piece because even in the work that I do, and I remember <laughs> fellow equity, fellow equity colleagues, and I'm having this challenging argument on them, and this comes up quite a lot. And I mean, like, to kill a mockingbird. And I'm saying, you guys are even starting at the wrong point of this piece. It shouldn't exist because we just don't even need to use it as a curriculum resource, let alone the debate on it. Equally, when I talked about the outsiders and the Great Gatsby and as if Shakespeare is the only one that ever written a play in, in, in this world. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, I like the outsiders. or the Greek And I said, I never said I didn't like them. Did you even hear me say that? I just told you, stop using words like classics and canons to justify using that literature, which does not speak to anything of what our current narrative or even yeah. spoke to the accurate narrative of that time as well. Because I've told you there's, we were around in the Roaring Twenties, mm-hmm. right? Where, where do you see us represented in, in any of those yeah. pieces? It's because why are you always just showing those pieces equally? And this is why I'm pushing and challenging schools that if you can take your children, uh, school kids to go and see Wonder – which I'm opposed to, not because of wonder or the story. It's because it just reinforces another white narrative of having a white child because there are people in South Asians with disabilities, mm-hmm. Sikhs with disabilities. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to have white parents with white friends and white culture. Because, you know, even somehow when they're saying, yeah, yeah, you know, this, this show was taped in New York. And it's funny because I've never seen a white New York the way the show's showing it. Because they, even, even in the background, they can't even get that correct. Right. Right? And so that's the issue I have is that any child, including my child, does not need another Eurocentric or white narrative as part of their educational experience. I don't care what wonder has as a, as a value or a great lesson because that lesson can be equally taught or shared or even better shared in a more representative manner, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's, that's the challenge uh, that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- I find it interesting. Like, so the, the kill, To Kill a Mockingbird example, it would be one thing if that existed as part of the curriculum and then there was some options that were counter-narrative to that, right? So then I think you could even make a case because now we're showing the gamut of different experiences from different perspectives. But when that becomes idolized as a classic, right, and you can't tamper with it, I can't understand why people want to double down on that. The first part of me can't understand that, but then I kind of think, you know, I step back and, okay, if you've never lived a day in your life looking, you know, looking down at your hands and thinking of, of the color of your skin, or if you didn't live in a world today where if you happen to have a black son and you're not sure when he goes out at night what he's going to encounter and you don't have any of those worries if he happens not to be black, 
right? And in the current climate, especially as toxic and heated as it is, to see this book and consider it a classic and then to cling to it so desperately. I don't know who is actually the one that said this, but to the privileged, even yes, equality, equality feels like oppression, oppression. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. It, it feels like that. And it's just this, this strange thing. I can't believe that people double down on it. And, and I don't give them a note. And I'll tell you why. I have to navigate in both spaces. Mm-hmm. Okay. Privilege allows them not to. And then they choose in that privilege not to. Just like when they talk about enclaves and ethnic ghettos, listen, they're as old as existence of civilization in any space, including Toronto. Yeah. The reality is it's a function of white flight that those actually end up happening the way they do. Because when a house is available, anybody can move there. But some people don't have the luxury of choice of moving any further because if they only have one vehicle or they don't have access to a vehicle and it's within a, a tr- transportation hub or, or, or a job accessibility hub. See, if, if I have extra resources like cars and stuff, I can move 20 minutes away and drive in 20 minutes if I, if I feel like because I have a car. Someone doesn't have that luxury to have that choice of right. that piece, right? And so when you're talking about these pieces, I don't give that out uh, for, for to saying, can they... Do they? Because we're around, I'm around, we've been around over 100 years. And either they're going to accept me or they're going to continue to have their head buried so deep that they don't want to. Mm-hmm. They're experiential because now in 2018, you can't be in Toronto without that. But there'll be people in Torontonians that will have that position that you just said right now in terms of just trying to hold on to it. Right. Right. And again, coming back to Tiger, the focus that the power of it was that somebody was going to have an empathy for somebody who didn't necessarily look like them. And I say that because, like I said, we have to do it every time. If I saw Wonder, my son's on Wonder, of course he's going to develop empathy. But that's an empathy that he's developed all the time towards white people, stuff like that. He doesn't have a chance to develop the same type to other faith groups or other racialized groups. Mm -hmm. Okay? And that's what matters the most. Right. Right, yeah, and 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 that's part of that uh, experiential, and that's why I will never still say have a narrative counter narrative. I'm just saying we owe it to Canadians, we owe it to students in the educational system to have a more accurate and inclusive narrative for that empathy now. And every time we don't do it, every time we're still even giving them two positions, we're still doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, because the time now is to say the characters in the book should have a name party. And a Sayyib and a Nanaki. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, when you hear a name Nanaki, it's not either, both Canadian to you. There's no emotional concept attached to it. There's no empathy that's ever got developed, even on anything remotely around that. So, that would in of itself already so other you in somebody else's yeah. Canadian experience. And I'm going, but how and why? I'm not sure what the the solution to this is, but one of the the things, at least the way it manifests, well, the solution is representation. Well, represented in curriculum, represented in TV, representing so that when you watch, when you see, when you engage, you're still engaging all your senses, Mm -hmm. you're still engaging all your emotions, but what you're seeing as part of that connecting in the brain and the background now is connecting. To something deeper than whiteness. So what I was going to say is, uh, yeah, absolutely representation I think is critical here. What's, I think it needs to be more than a focus on the 
ethnicity of that person, oh, right? So it, it, one of the things I find really odd it, it culturally in Canada, like I think that there may have been a better era of TV and media and stuff in Canada where we – you don't constantly need to be riding the fact that we're Canadian. Like, you know, this whole pushing Mounties and snow and polar bears and whatnot. Like, no, push it. Just- My only piece is is push Mounties with turbans. Push black Mounties. Put – uh, push uh, Asian Canadian Mounties. Push. That's the problem because as long as we push white Mounties, it doesn't reflect of Canada, right? Uh, and, yeah. and and the other piece that you said, uh, I'm going to always push back a little bit. Uh, I, I, I relatively agree that we don't and we shouldn't have to do it by explaining because Tiger, in fact, furthest from anything and in fact I don't even know if it said anything about who Sikhs are relatively in the movie because you don't need to because just my character presence with a turban on and being identified Sikh is, speaks enough for it but then equally I shouldn't have to apologize because if we look at even our social spaces and the TV and stuff do you don't think they're going to church do you think they're not praying do they not have those narratives mm-hmm. as part of it does 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 Pearson not have uh, a chapel does the University of Toronto not have the, these exist in every single space and they're on there the issue that we have is is and if everybody, anybody has a chance is to watch the TED talk on danger of a single story because I still have people asking me about Lily and, and you know Russell and stuff and Russell was a fellow boxer in the same boxing gym in fact okay. uh, as mine and I've known him for a long time and um, and I said what are you guys talking about the, it, the problem that you have is that you have no other narrative. And that's your single story. For example, let's just take the white community again. Not only are there are comedians that are even worse and who sometimes even speak only of even more, like, like uh, uh, what's it, Axworth, uh, James, uh, uh, the American uh, comedian, uh, um, and the name's just slipping right now. But they will even create a show called Trailer Park and on and on and on. But why doesn't Trailer Park stick to you or me or any other person? Because equally with Trailer Park or that comedian, they have athletes, they have anchors, they have TV shows, they have TV characters, they have Mm -hmm. movie characters and everything. So you have that spectrum and that won't hold. And because we got nothing else in representation – that's still trying. They're still trying to find us through those pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It, it with comes you. I, I think back it, to it's, representation. Well, I, I think it's representation, and so like the example you mentioned of the, the kids' show, and it may or may not be the same show. I've seen a couple times when we're in the states, and and my daughter watched, and she enjoyed it, but she's like, "Daddy, why does this kid have an accent? Why does he have an Indian accent?" And you can tell it's a fake accent that yeah. he put on in like a week. Born in California. It's and it's and it's, <laughs> it's, acting school and it's unnecessary for his character. Absolutely. Other than to other and ghettoize that that individual further. So if he's in that show, great. Let him just be himself and let it let it just play out as it does. Like I think what I'm suggesting is when you start playing to specific stereotypes and that is the only thing that's ever shown. I'm not suggesting yeah, yeah, no, and don't I agree have with characters yeah, yeah, yeah. with ethnic accents. Yeah, yeah. You should, but you should have characters with and without. They should yeah. have British accents, Absolutely. Norwegian accents, whatever yeah, yeah, it yeah. Cause, be. Because like when I was talking about Canadians wear turbans, so do Americans because I have a lot of American friends that wear turbans. So yeah. do British people. Yeah. In fact, we have family in Italy 
<laughs> who speaks there's, Italian. There's lots of right? Sikhs in, in right? Hong Kong. Right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. My dad speaks Cantonese. Actually, oh. he lived in Hong Kong, <laughs> right? <laughs> I would love to see that. I have, I, I've never met a, a, a Sikh man speaking Cantonese. In fact, I can show you a little bit on YouTube because uh, Kerry did a little small clip on my dad. Oh, that's uh, Speaking Cantonese. Um, but uh, absolutely, absolutely, right? And this is why I continue to be dumbfounded by the lack of progress. Because if they want to talk progress, I'm saying it's even... Even the progress, if it, if you even want to declare it, is accidental because naturally, you know, when there's just enough of us a population, one or two of us might end up somehow on TV by accident. Anyway, <laughs> so that was not by any real effort. It's in spite of the few that have just accidentally been there. And I don't say accidentally taking away from their hard work and their perseverance and all the battles they might have had to get there. But boy, don't count that towards your grouping of progress. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's funny. I, I think we're we're in a different world today, where you're starting to see uh, is by no means the level of representation that you need. I mean, a few people have somehow managed to make it through with a, a lot of uh, a lot of grit and being tenacious and whatnot. But it's it's a it's a long road, right? And we haven't. And and this is the thing. I, I feel like while we should celebrate where we make progress in places and in in many regards i think the world today is much better than but, it was but 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 you remember i i said i said i said representation inspiration and celebration and celebration yeah okay yeah. because because you cannot miss the opportunity to celebrate tiger right mm-hmm. but remember that this the best way to celebrate it is to know that someone wants should take step 2 so, I mean, we've kind of gone deep on a bunch of things, but just for context, for some of the, the folks that may not know, obviously, Tiger is this feature film that's just released. You know, it's got Mickey Rourke, who's just a, a, you know, I imagine a force of nature. It's got Prem Singh, who plays you in it. But leading up to that film, what is the story, the crux of the story that this is based around in terms of your challenge back in 99? So, yeah, I, I grew up playing many sports as an athlete. I played uh, I, I, uh, soccer, wrestling, uh, very competitive ball hockey, um, tennis champion, uh, did a lot of sports, um, recreationally, very competitively as well. And um, I ended up getting injured playing soccer, uh, had a shoulder uh, injury, required surgery. And um, it was the same time I had just entered the uh, police force with Peel as an auxiliary constable. And um, I had to choose between my rehab and uh, uh, the training, which was mandatory. Otherwise, I would reapply or re-come back a year later. So I decided to stay in there. And then afterwards, I decided I was going to heal uh, or try to rehab uh, my injury. And uh, two physiques I always wanted to emulate, if I could in my life, was was a boxer and a gymnast. Uh, the upper body strength of, of, of gymnasts and stuff like that is just still in my head behind comprehension just phenomenal Mm -hmm. Uh, but the age place I was in my 20s and um, boxing was probably a better fit uh, all around for me at that moment moment anyway so I enter a boxing gym to do rehab people might think what's a boxing gym going to do but the core exercises you look at concepts like the speed bag and everything else is to build uh, core body strength including especially the arms the shoulders and stuff like that core pieces for boxing right um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing. The corner of my eye, I see a boxing ring all the time there. And somebody one day comes in and says, Hey, are you ever going to box? And of course, uh, I mean, I'll take competition even if I've never played a sport in my life. And if it's you and me and I see a ping pong table here or something else, I'll say, let's go. 
because uh, as long as I can have bragging rights over you tomorrow or tonight texting you, <laughs> I'm champion. <Love> <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? I'm champion. Yeah. Who, what champion are you, buddy? Between us two, yeah. <laughs> right? That's all that matters World to me, champion. right? Between you and yeah, me, yeah. right? So equally, uh, as an athlete and being competitive and stuff like that, and said, you know, if you're ever gonna, are you ever going to I said, yeah. And they said, you know, you're going to have to shave that. And long story short, uh, checked with the coach afterwards, realized there was these rules and regulations uh, prohibiting beards everything else was allowed we talked about already uh, um, so even the turban at that point was allowed well the the the, the piece around that was th- this was around the beard piece and so mustache was allowed sideburns stuff like that and we talked about McGregor already and having a bigger beard than me and not being a Sikh and allowed to box and, but for this one it was, it was that was a specific part and I say this because the context and the time versus some things that have been changed since and back and forth on that piece because uh, I'm sure used to wear headgear and then they removed the headgear now and stuff like that so it goes back and forth because I would be wearing uh, kind of like a patka or bandana and stuff like that and then, and, and then headgear over and so that was not going to be a, a, and this a was technical issue in, in, in Ontario or oh, well, it was actually Canada? It was, uh, it, was, it, was, the... it was it was it was it was an interesting uh, it was an international ban which manifests itself to uh, many countries and I say that because countries can also have different rules uh, within Canada within even Canada Ontario boxing had different rules uh, at one point because they were the first ones to allow women boxing before any other province and stuff like that and so there's always relative variation stuff and then we found a very interesting piece and, and a lot of people might not know this as part of the story piece at that time and. There was a lot of battles that I had to go through because then Boxing Ontario wouldn't touch it. They said, go to Boxing Canada. I went to Boxing Canada, uh, tabled a motion. They defeated 96, come back uh, because then there's nothing I can do with Boxing Canada. Voluntary human rights complaint, uh, get it resolved, started competing, provincial novice championship, then eventually representing Ontario at the national championships. Um, get to Cam River for the 1999 Sydney Olympic qualification national championship tournament leading into that kind of piece. Um, they end up disqualifying me. I have an unprecedented legal phenomenon that happens that we possibly anticipated that might be happening. So we kind of prepared back here. And in fact, we were technically ready. And we we walked into court without being on the docket. Wow. Which means not being – because you can walk into any court tomorrow. You, you, they're already they, – their tomorrow's Monday schedule is already scheduled, mm-hmm. even on the weekend of some emergency. But there's no such thing as literally. I mean, it can happen in rare circumstances, but this is how rare this gets. Want to get on the docket? Want to get on now? Because the way in time that I got disqualified for only had not much time right. left. And that could have been another loophole they use. So I'm already disqualified now. And they get put on the docket. Then they get actually heard. And they get heard with permission to be heard without the other side present. Because hmm. they're all in, in Vancouver. Right. So we want to present a case, and you're only going to hear our side, and you're going to hear it now, and we want you to make a decision on it, and we're hoping the decision you're going to make is favorable. And we got it all. We got an injunction. Wow. And they called me back because I had already contacted them saying I'm disqualified. They said, they, we've called them, we're in contact, they're aware of the decision because it was binding. And the reason because because boxing kind of that time was uh, Ottawa-based, which is uh, Ontario-based. And so it was Ontario Superior Court, so to speak, right? And so it was okay. legally binding that way on them. Versus just when I followed for Ontario Human Rights was uh, in Ontario, not necessarily in Vancouver, although they were in Ontario and that was not going to apply that way. But this was to the organization that was in Ontario. 
Okay. Right? Right. Some technical piece around that. And that's why they u- used the loophole anyway to disqualify me. So I go back down to weigh in. They actually don't let me weigh in. Uh, Even after the injunction? Yeah. But uh, uh, time passes and they call me into a room. And then what happens? They cancel the whole weight class. Um, and so a lot of craziness went on. And I had to fight another legal battle. And in between all that time, my life was so, threatened. So, sorry, did they cancel the weight class oh, yeah. because of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, of- not, not because of me. They want to make it look like that and seem like because of me. It was because of them. I had the right. I had every right to be there. Right. So I. No, I, no, I, no, no, no. I know. But, but, no, no, but, I know. I know. But it's a nuance. But it's important because just like for example, around that time, there were news reports saying uh, Canadian boxer wants the right to fight or Sikh boxer wants the right to box, and I'm saying, no, no, no. I think you're missing something. How do you think I got here? I'm already boxing. Mm-hmm. I already got the right. Yeah, I didn't I'm just, just trying show to figure, up at this way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why not in Vancouver and I haven't left the country, okay? And, and again, because these are important, important nuance pieces, right? Right. right? So when they cancel the weight class, it's because they cancel the weight class. Had nothing to do with me. Nothing. I had every right, just like any other boxer, had every legal right to be there and stuff like that. It's a decision they made for themselves that created very uh, a lot of animosity uh, with other fellow boxers as well. And Joe Public. And that's why I was attacked by Joe Public. Uh, and my life was threatened and stuff. And so even after all that, still had to go back to court. And eventually got all that resolved at the national level. What did Joe Public like, like? Oh, lots of Joe what? Public. No, Joe no, no. Public comments and papers. Joe Public, when I got to the boxing venue. But what were they saying? Like what was the... Oh, everything racist and bigotry and visceral as you can imagine there was nothing i didn't hear during that moment and it got worse than that because it was not just what they said it's what they did uh my picture uh, somebody put my picture up at the boxing venue at the first entrance sign of where the boxing venue was going to be once you entered the facility and um my mustache and beard was covered or erased or however you wanted to find that piece and stuff so a lot went down a lot went down and uh you know interesting enough didn't bother me the threat, How the, old threat you at this time? The, the, the threat didn't bother me, and the reason the threat didn't bother me was because Baltage went through the same and similar and in some instances worse experience than I did in 1990, and I was well aware that the ugly side of Canada and Canadians can show up. Mm. And he used to get mail saying there's a bullet with your name on it. So I wasn't naive. I knew that could have been the reality. The piece that pissed me off there and the piece that will continue to piss me off today is when I get othered. And what does Canada have to do with them? Why do those people come to our country? Why do they want to change the rules? And why doesn't India have to do this? And that had, all that had nothing to do with who I am. Yeah, yeah. And this country of Canada. And I would have represented Canada and worn that maple leaf and, and represented the values. And if we want to speak to those values or call ourselves countries, you know, values, human rights and all that, then that's, let's actually live out those and let's challenge those as Canadians when they're going to be threatened, okay? Because mm-hmm. that, that, that's the real crux of, 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 of this piece uh, around the narrative. And so um, the piece that I was pissed off then, that piece that I was pissed off then, is that othering of me uh, piece. Not that my physical threats, I handle that every single day. It's, it's, it's being defined as something I'm not. Uh, I'm Canadian, and yet uh, regularly people are trying to uh, label, define me. And one of the interesting other loopholes we found at that time, which was interesting because the, the, where the story ended up after related to that was we found an exemption in England for Sikhs only. And mine was around for any boxer, faith purposes or medical reasons, stuff that was open. And we used that because Canada Amateur Boxing Institute was trying to use another 
excuse that they want to be in good standing with Ayiba. And we said, hey, well, England's good standing, and they had this peace. Mm. What eventually happened in England was that another faith group challenged that peace, and they said instead of allowing another exemption or even opening up the exemption, they've removed the exemption. <laughs> so that's why just seven months ago, about 10 years now removed from when they reversed that piece itself, finally got the rule changed in England again to allow beards. And like I said, working on the international level still as well. And so um, it still carries a responsibility, that whole story. So to the uninformed, all of this um, talk and hoopla and pushback and, and battles over a beard, it feels fairly trivial, and I'm not minimizing anyways. But it seems, it well, seems it, it is at times. Like, like even I, when I go out and public speak on this, sometimes with kids, I say, shouldn't they be more worried about my fist and a beard? Like, a beard? Like, like seriously? And in the sport of boxing? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 I'm like, and that's what I'm trying to. I'm still dumbfounded because every single mixed martial art and contact sport allows beards, even boxing itself. McGregor did. So it is trivial. I trust me. I have no problems with that. <laughs> It's not that I'm saying the beard is trivial. What no, seems trivial issue. that an organization would make such a stink about a beard when really what it's trying to say is we're not changing ourselves for someone else. Oh, listen, the last act that at that time, the Canadian Amateur Bo- and it wasn't even the last act because then I spoke at, in 2015 for the year of the sport. We invited Boxing Canada to come be on stage with me at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights when I spoke there and they refused. Really, and, and and they refused even the last court case to decide not to show up because the position they were taking was that we don't agree and we never will agree. We're forced to agree by your courts and your judges, right? I mean, you hear this rhetoric right now in the political sphere down south and even around here mm-hmm. that we we are forced by these courts and judges and whatever it may be and stuff. And you might not know. And again, another reason to come by the Secretary Museum. For Baltasia's case in 1990, I have pins. There's lots of racist memorabilia that was created. And the ones that fascinate me the most when I'm sharing it with people is not all the ones that were against it that said, uh, keep the RCMP Canadian and has a person with a turban across, right across the neck and the turban and stuff, or uh, uh, yes to the RCMP, no to the turban and all that stuff. It's the ones that were made after the decision. So wow. here are pins that say turbans approved March 19, 1990, but not accepted. Turbans approved has the date, a sad day for Canada. And these, what would take for a fellow Canadian to actually artistically make that up? Get it uh, produced. Back in 1990. Get it yeah, produced. Yeah. Get it produced and then actually sell and make money off this because other ones are willing to buy it. Just think about that whole process for a second. And so even my boxing piece, I can tell you, was not accepted. Wow. So let's come back to the film. I mean, this obviously this has been, I'm sure, a few years in the making. But like, what was the journey of retelling your story and kind of seeing it come to life um, I'm, I'm even curious, like, you know, sitting down with Brahim, who plays you, him getting to know you and your mannerisms and whatnot. Like, you've obviously told your story, you know, more times than you can count. And yet, in telling it quite in this way and then seeing it come to life on screen, do you feel like it's an authentic telling of you? Was it kind of, is it surreal? Like, what does that actually feel like? So the joke and the feeling I've always said is, listen, as long as it made me prettier than I am in life, I'm good. Um, 
coming back honestly in terms of the piece that uh, uh, you're talking about around that, uh, believe it or not, I never talked about it to them, relatively speaking. I never read the script, even to this day. Wow. Um, I trusted the process and them. I didn't want to find Prem's inspiration for him. I don't want to say, no, 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 let me tell you what's a better story or what's more important about me or who I authentically am or anything else related to that piece. Because I would have trusted that if you're going to speak or talk or create a movie or create a script about party in the box and whatever, uh, party will come out. The, 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 there's nothing else you can do about me. So what, write so, about me. So then uh, what was create the about me. Is it just the, the and, and and so and so and so I was already public interest story. Lots of articles out there. Right. I became part of pop culture lore. There's a trivia pursuit question on me. I'm featured in uh, One Thousand Beards, the cultural history of facial hair, and a whole bunch of other pop culture pieces. Uh, and Prem, like I can tell you so much about Voltage, was glued to his TV set watching me on TSN's Off the Record and everything else. And so my mannerisms, how I carried myself on TSN, how I described the situation going on and everything else that went around and everything else um, gave him relatively speaking enough to go on. I, I mean, I said I'm available and here to support and stuff like that. Um, but I was arm's length. Hmm. Uh, and I was arm's length throughout. I visited the set. I visited without anybody knowing. I just asked, let me know when you're going to set. And if I got a chance, just tell me which week. Because when I was available, it's only available on weekend stuff. And I'm going to pop in on my own. I won't tell anybody when I'm popping in. I just want to say thanks to the people and let them know there's a real person behind this story piece. And I'll tell you a couple of interesting stories that happened with that. The weekend I went on set, uh, got in there, I think, Friday night. Saturday morning, uh, I'm, I'm on set. Uh, first person hang out there I just say hey how's it going pretty good talking 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 they get ready to start filming and who walks away from me uh, the director Alistair Alistair Mc- <laughs> right and and Alistair Gerson and I said well that's interesting because uh, then he gets right behind the chair and right behind the camera I go oh I was just speaking to him and we never really got into who I am and who he is we just talked about every just regular normal conversation right. piece. And so it was funny. And then as soon as they're, okay, ready? Uh, Prem, uh, sorry, party, come here. So I'm about to take a step forward. And then I realized, no, they're not talking to me. They're talking to Prem in character because they only speak to the character in the character name. And Prem and I never had a conversation because like I said, never read the script, never, hmm. I was arm's length, never asked, was never told necessarily that they were going to actually use my real name. So that's the first time I'm so finding that's out. that's the first time you found out. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. And I would never find out if I never even went there to the movie theater because, because it, you know, could be based on a true story. The kid used my name, could not use my name. I, I was not going to so get had, into that. you had no idea how close or far they were to... No, the, no but it, because that was still, and it still isn't today, because that movie, Tiger, whether the character's name was Sayab, doesn't change it. And when you're going to go and experience it, it doesn't change it. Mm-hmm. It may a little bit, if you know me, but relatively outside of that, it's still my story. Right? And yet the story is bigger than you, right? 
Yeah. Yes, because I, I will not allow myself to be breaking the story. Other ones will see it the opposite. Well, you are the story. Uh, you lived the experience, and now it's the story. So it all depends on how people frame it. But, sure. But so, so you know, there's I, – I didn't even know that. Right until I went on set, and and uh, wow. right, great surprise and pretty interesting, pretty neat. Uh, another layer because you're you kind of you know wondering what does this feel like? What's it about? Authentically, I probably shouldn't be watching it. Probably can't really watch it if I were to really give you the thing because then I'll have to be reliving trauma. It was a very difficult time emotionally, physically, financially, and and everything. It, all those all those impacted me, and so if I. I already lived through an experiential. Why would I want to watch my trauma? Technically. Just if you want to be as raw as possible in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, we were just up in Collingwood. Friends were sitting back in the hot tub. I don't necessarily swear and you're going to laugh because anything related to the movie and I think my character does say a couple of words and and, and these are friends that have now watched it and they're they're just sitting there and, and they're going, wow, there was an effing Hollywood movie made about you. And they kept repeating it and I was just laughing like, like, because like, cause like, well, I'm just here hanging out, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're still going and, and they, you know, every couple of minutes, no matter what conversation we're in. That pops out, right? I mean, that is kind of epic. I'm, I'm not questioning the <laughs> yeah. epic, but I again see the epic within a larger framework of representation, an epic within a larger framework of inspiration, epic within a larger framework of responsibility. Because there's still work right now. Uh, trying to get school kids out, trying to get part of that simplex yeah, yeah. educational program, there's work to be done. Uh, if, if I just leave it and say, hey, great, and uh, where can I sign the next autograph? Who wants to speak to me and where to talk? Uh, then I'm not even being authentic to to who I am and what even created the movie to be even happening about me because I stood up that time. Uh, I could have walked away, right, mm-hmm. from, from, from what was presented to have to challenge to have the right to compete. And equally, that doesn't stop just because there's a movie made on me. Right. Okay? The authentic work that I do or who I am authentically – is part and parcel still of I only see this movie as a responsibility. I, I don't, like I said, if, if, if I were to, you kind of make me sit and sit and ask a question and dig deeper and stuff like that. I, like I said, I, you know, I haven't shared anywhere else that piece where that, this trauma piece and stuff like that um, through that lens and stuff like that. Um, there's a responsibility for it right now. Mm-hmm. And that's how I perceive Tiger. Like I said, yeah, there'll be moments and, you know, and there'll be, there might be times, but it's not too far removed either because I've all, I've been in the public eye for right. a long time yeah. now. I'm on the front cover history textbook, Trevor Pursue Question. That alone for people freaks them out. If anything, and, and a movie now, I guess, another layer. Yeah. But then again, look, you can have a movie because you're a serial killer so again, how do I see it and what do I need to be proud of? Because someone else can be proud of and they can be a serial killer and still feel pride. Movie, wow, Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I don't think we would have the same conversation or you wouldn't want them sitting in front of you right. per se yeah, yeah. asking that question. And so, yeah, wild, come on, pinch me. I won't still feel it, believe it maybe, you know what I mean? But great, and I would be just excited if that movie was based on somebody else's journey that way or even some other 
character in another sport, but they were seek uh, going there. What I like, and maybe I'm just kind of reading between the lines, but it almost feels like this now becomes just another tool almost in the arsenal of being able to have a bigger conversation about this thing that still needs to be sorted out, right? And film, the, the beauty of art and film and music, it's just the suspension of disbelief. And I, I can only imagine that there's probably literally thousands of young Sikh kids or brown kids or just white kids, just kids watching this and they're going to see a character and they're going to understand the struggle and they're not going to care that this person was sick or white or black or whatnot. And this, the story resonates, the story of being perseverant and, and triumphant and whatnot, at least in that context. And that's, I think, the beauty of, of, of film and media and whatnot. Now you have one more tool to help you in this, in this fight that you're continuing on. Uh, absolutely. But again, I'll come back again. But who that person in the inspiration, determination, and struggle matters. Because mm-hmm. like I said, kids will have a lot of opportunity and they will see. And Wonder would probably inspire kids of what that child uh, is going through, uh, being differently abled and perseverance and over the bullying, because I got bullied also, you'll see in, in, in the movie Tiger and stuff like that. But now who do you develop that empathy towards? Mm-hmm. What kind of character? Yeah. And where do you see that in that? Because we were talking about this, that normalness that, you know, uh, we read books, we drink water, whatever we do and stuff like that. That's the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest difference that Tiger can add value that no other film can right now uh in in the sense that black panther did in terms of right, as, right. As, as one narrative but still you know more than that and especially for us as canadian because because then we can say but this character's canadian who <laughs> this movie was based on you yeah. know like, like that's another layer we get right now out of tiger yeah. like it just you know what i mean that, that that's how powerful it is that's work. beautiful your father and, and sorry your kids are how old? Uh, kids, Nanaki, my daughter is 14, son, Saib is 11. Okay, so we're both fathers of a daughter and a son, mine are seven and four. I, I find it's, today's world feels very crazy, but yet there's all sorts of inspiring and incredible things happening and people doing am- amazing things. And yet, I remember my, my daughter when she was in, she's in grade two now, but uh, early in grade one, she she was asking something about Trump and saying a lot of kids are worried about Trump. And then I was talking to the vice principal there at her school and she was saying apparently there's a lot of kids actually that are really worried at that time about uh, about Trump and because they can't really distinguish between borders of, you know, America and Canada and whatnot. And there's a lot of concern over it. And, and you know, in this age, these kids are growing up in the, this era of populism, climate change, and all of these sorts of things. I wonder, like, how, what do you do on a daily basis to kind of, you know, as a father, as an educator, you know, as a, just a, a man of this world, like, how do you go about navigating this and bringing people together? What stories do you tell your kids? What do you impart on them? Uh, and I speak a lot on this, so thank you for sh- for uh, allowing me to reflect on that question because I think it's fundamentally important because this is where people actually lose the battle. And I'm saying battle because you put a social context and a political context to this and saying, party, this is social and this is a political context and yet all these things, climate change and all that stuff. So that means the battle, the fight mm-hmm. towards humanity and poverty, discrimination, marginalization, all that kind of stuff. 
alignment, all that stuff, reconciliation. And too often, fellow Canadians leave the responsibility just in thought. So they believe that they're kind. They believe that they're good-hearted. They believe, but their actions are not consistent with the belief system. And I'll share an interesting piece that will help bring, hopefully, this home a little bit. There's a social experiment called A Doll Like Me. They showed children dolls of various degrees of pigmentation from light skin to dark skin, white skin to dark skin. And consistently, the kids were asked, based on a series of questions, to choose the doll. Who would they want as their best friend? Who's the smart one? Who's the pretty one? And all that kind of stuff. And consistently, the light-skinned white doll was chosen by all participants who were from various backgrounds, racial backgrounds and everything. CNN decided to replicate that piece. I want to see how, how true is it still. There was a slight change but not a, st- a statistical enough change in some of the responses of the black children. And CNN didn't do with dolls. They just did with the same pigmentation but cut out characters of, of, of children character kind of thing with the pigmentation. And that was because there was a little while that uh, black families and parents were trying to say black is beautiful and all that to the children as just the first level of a narrative piece for a little while um, because now they're trying – really expand that piece just mm-hmm. beyond that piece and what was interesting was when they did it they had the parents through looking through that traditional glass where you can only see one way not the other and they right. watch the kids and stuff like that and one of the individuals in the CNN study was a teacher and so she watched her daughter and she watched her daughter consistently choose the white doll light skin doll and afterwards they approached the mother and the mother was crying and said, what's the problem? And she said, but that's not what I believe. And I laughed as an educator because you asked as an educator and stuff. And I laughed because watching it and watching a reaction of crying was because what you believe and what you demonstrate through your actions are two different things. Right. Yeah. Two different worlds, in fact. Not even two different things. Two different worlds. Mm-hmm. So to say I got nothing against LGBTQ, but never engaging your children with LGBTQ family mm-hmm. or friends or just supporting the pride parade or anything else related to the LGBTQ community is not demonstrating what you believe. And so it's like if that mother was reading a book to her daughter and in the book there's a police officer male and a firefighter male and she says, you know what? Girls and ladies can be police officers and firefighters. She might have won the gender war. Mm-hmm. But if she didn't say, and so can black people, because I'm sure the picture was of a white firefighter and a white police officer. And so you see the work you actually have to do. Right. And so what you believe and how you behave and act are two completely different worlds and narratives. And that's the issue that we have at hand. Okay? And so for me, as a father, it's my behavior. Mm-hmm. Only my behavior that counts. 
My words are just words. In fact, they would be empty if my behavior is not consistent with them. Do I use words and everything? Of course. But it is only justified and validated and truthful when my actions speak Mm -hmm. the same way. And so that's the important part. That's the important part. And part of the piece when you're talking about this piece around Trump and everything else is to also accept a reality. And the reality is Trump is the president. Mm -hmm. Now, if you disagree, come back to what I was just sharing as a metaphor. I don't care what you think and disagree. I want to know what your actions are saying about your disagreement. Right. You know how I said, well, if you disagree, vote. Yep. Right? That's where I put my energy and effort emphasis on. And it doesn't have to be through hatred. It can mm-hmm. just be a counteraction. I don't have to hate Trump to have to or think about wanting to vote against him. Sure, yeah. Okay? Right? Because I mean, we've seen around, some people said, you know, voted because there were a couple of core things that he said that he was willing to do or wanted to do that was core to what I would like to see our president do. And that's why I voted. I mean, I, I will accept the those things for me that I voted for and the rest is I couldn't care less. I don't even have an opinion on. It doesn't even bother me. Right? And so you have to you also have to understand the context in and if you're not I mean, if you're naive to that and stuff like that, then that's the same thing of what allowed uh people in this world that were devastating or negative in terms of their peace mm-hmm. and how they conduct themselves when they had positions of power. And it's not unique to just political power, it's, it's a lot of other pieces, right? Right. And so and so for me as a father, my responsibility is heavily in my action. I fully agree. I think that uh, our children need to see, you know, with their parents and hopefully even other people, adults particularly in, in their life, that actions are sort of consistent with the words and the messages we're giving. So, I mean, this is sort of a different strain, but your kids actually seeing you doing things that you're interested in and passionate about. If you have the the luxury to be able to do those things, I think it's kind of important because when we tell our kids, follow your passion, follow your dreams, or, you know, find something that interests you, try new things. If you just say that, but then you never actually do it, then it's not necessarily real yet. And so it doesn't even just have to be about (laughs) politics or about race I, you know, I'm very thankful for, you know, the, the parents that I have and my father in particular, just being the man that he has. Most of what I've learned, I think, as, as a man and now, you know, father is not from him telling me stuff. It's just from him being himself in the world. And, you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, have kids of my own, I start to realize how much I, through osmosis, just absorbed from him just being himself. And I think... It has to be in an ideal state. We need to get to a place where this is beyond just parents. It's like the community at large. Like there's a there's an art school just up the street here, the Etobicoke School for the Arts, and there was that issue that came up, I don't know, it was a year ago or so, where there was a bunch of black students who were on a list. I work for the Toronto District School Board. And, and so the the uh, what they call uh, specialized schools, right? In that case, we're the educators that we entrust our children in, and they're also part of this community and whatnot. Now, if they're 
perpetuating a distorted message. And that distorted message is not just having a negative effect in this case on black students, it's also having a negative effect on all other students that it might either reinforce the same stupid narrative it's going to make some people feel worse about themselves. Some people give will get a false sense of grandiosity as a result. So as a society, I think we have to hold all of ourselves to account to make sure that our actions are as consistent with what it is that we say we believe. And if you don't believe in plurality and you don't believe in representation and you don't believe that these people should be here, I mean, I would personally almost prefer that you just came out and said it because then at least we can have a conversation. We're not pretending anymore. And I think part of the problem has been that people have just avoided saying it for so long, but the problem never went away. So at least now we've made, we can at least take a first step and say, okay, look, you think that way. Let's talk about it. Let's try and understand why you even think that in the first place. I'm not a fan of that. No? Um, that's saying... Uh Let's talk about sexism to a female um, so that I can help try to figure this out as a male because it is a male issue. and The victims are females, but sexism is predominantly a male issue. And maybe as part of the conversation to have them bleed a little bit more that I might finally get it. Um, and because I've been doing this work professionally as well, um, the one thing that I fundamentally realized and have been sharing is that I can't wait for people to get it. Right. The pieces that you and I are talking about, some of these things have been going on for uh, over a hundred years in Canada. We just have to disrupt. And in the disruption, people are going to have to either figure it out, get along or try to avoid the disruption. Right. Human rights, equality, and all these pieces of inclusion has never in the history of mankind been voluntarily just given, afforded. Yeah, no. And so equally, the pieces that you're talking about from the experiences of the art school and everything else is part of the curriculum and education. I got no more time to have conversations with people. Yeah. The, com- the, the, the piece is, if the curriculum can change the way you and I have been speaking as part of this programming, it will already change the psyche, the psyche, that no quick conversation, because remember, conversation means that you're going to bring your, hypothetically, let's just say we're both 45 or both 40 or both 50, 50 years or 45 years of lived experience and everything mm-hmm. else, and you think I'm going to shift in a conversation? Right. In fact, there's an article that's live on my computer right now that I've been holding because I, I use this part of it in the training and stuff like that because it, it speaks to why do people hold on to uh, beliefs or values that are either not true or proved wrong and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff in survival. And it's a phenomenal because we are Rolodex and hardwired and all that stuff based on things and, and social interactions and social markers and all that kind of stuff. And and a conversation is not going to do it. I get it may, because there's sometimes there's power attached to it in a conversation, it might help influence a little bit or have an understanding a little bit. But if we really want to solve this, a conversation to me is a bandage. If you want the full solution, change curriculum because that's what's creating the minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you can start changing 
that click inside there, you're going to be nurturing and creating different human beings' experiences. And I rather, and this is funny because I, I can I can challenge you on this one. If if you me are sitting here saying, "Party, how long have you been doing this?" Because I said I spend more time defining equity than actually getting to do the work. Mm-hmm. You talked about how long you've been here. That technically is more than one whole child cycle. 2004 to 2018 is 14 years, yeah? Kids are usually in school K to 12. Let's say JK to 12, you could give me 13 years. Let's just get 14 just to be fair. Sure, yeah. That's a full cycle. And if we actually just started what we said in 2004 and started with kindergarten, and then kindergarten moved to grade one, then we changed the grade one curriculum, and the kindergarten was already changed last year because that was the first cohort we decided today that's it. Like never again, starting today, this year, 2004, kindergarten, swamped. We'll let grade one, two, all the rest of the teachers still do what they want to do. And the next year, all we're doing is changing grade one. Two, three still get to do what they want, but kindergartens were already changed last year, so it's going to keep working. And, and, and it has a process to allow you to continue to evolve, knowing your students, student population, and just generally in other pieces. And then you build it, build it, build it. Guess what? I already had a system that works. That's all it technically takes. But as long as we keep fighting, keep fighting to figure out if it's canon, oh, I'm still a good teacher. Are you saying I'm not a good teacher? And all the other stuff. And fighting, why did you change me from grade two to grade four? Uh, Oh, I moved to grade four. So who taught grade four last year? Can you give me your curriculum so I don't have to? Especially at our fingertips. There's no excuse, for example, when I go into schools and I talk about Remembrance Day, type in sick soldier Canadian. Just type in sick soldier, mm-hmm. World War One. Three words that you can type into the most powerful machine at our fingertips. You don't need party to come in and do an in-service. No, right? I, so I, I agree so, with you 100% on all this. I think my, my point is just that I would rather know that a person is sexist or racist or bigoted or whatnot than pretend that they're not because they just haven't said that thing and then they're going to continue perpetuating that belief. I think we need to do all of the things that you're suggesting, but we also need to just surface that, you know, just be honest with ourselves and, that and, we are and, not and, in and it. Then I, but, but that's not human instinct. And, and so in an, an ideal world, uh, I would like to know because then I can choose to either occupy a space, not occupy like space, argue, not argue, have a conversation, not argument. I mm-hmm. agree with you, 100%. Yeah. But the reality of that is you're asking us to dig deep to our very basic uh, human basic instinct, and that is the mode of survival and defense. Yeah. Okay? And we're not evolved as human species with our emotional t- intelligence to make that pragmatic. And so I agree, but it's neither going to be happening at the rate we need it so we can keep navigating and managing and figuring out at the rate necessary for it to even have any sustainable, purposeful uh, uh, substance. And that's why, because, and you and I know doing this work and, and another piece of when we get involved in, there are days, you think I even have the energy and time? Look at Martin Luther King, 1960s, letter from Birmingham Jill. And you know what he says? Listen, I usually don't write to my critics because if I do, then that's all I would have spent my time on. Mm-hmm. And I would have no time to actually do anything else to do, do good yeah. and stuff like that. And so, th- and I've told you, I'm, in my professional career, I've always said I've spent more time defending it. And that means have, I trying to have just even a conversation to justify why I'm doing what I'm doing than actually doing my work. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a sad narrative that I just shared of the work I do. Right? Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I will if, if hang out with you. I'll just professionally tell you, professionally tell you, don't waste your time. I, people who still want to talk to me about the RCMP turbine in 2018, that ship 1990 left. Yeah. And we don't have a turbine police force. So what's your issue? Because I, I got a lot of other things I'm moving on and still trying to address. And you want me to go back there to try to figure this out very quickly for you? Your issue to figure out, if you want to figure it out. Yeah. Not I, my responsibility. Yeah. No, look, I, look on that front, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think maybe it's, it's the context because different different situations might work. I, 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 I agree. Sometimes look, I, like, I, I will... Do, I think we're seeing increasing polarization here. I think the, a, a big a big part of why I think Trump ended up, you know, coming into power is because there's such a huge constituency of people who had who were legitimately struggling in this increasingly globalized world watching their jobs go, you know, across the pond and they were also being misinformed, miseducated by the system at the same time. And if someone was even leaning towards voting for Trump, and maybe their reasons had nothing to do with him being, you know, a racist bigot or whatever. Maybe it's because no other politician in that particular state or in that particular county had ever come around when they were actually struggling. And he's the first one that came through. Just the fact that he talked to him, if you even had that conversation with them, I think you would have, a person might have been able to uncover, here's what the actual grievance is, instead of just saying that they're, you know, a racist and a bigot. Again, I agree. And I agree around that because I've, uh, deconstructed some of the pieces. We 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 probably watched some of those same programs because because I understand some of those pieces. In fact, if we don't want to really speak too much about the U.S. politics piece itself, we know that Clinton didn't go to some of the places. She just thought we're there, and they mm-hmm. said, "Hey, yep. she never came." We, we know. And then there's another one that said, and he actually spoke to me, uh, but like like in some, not even if he spoke to them personally, but as in I connected. He showed up, right? Yeah. He showed up, or he said certain things in in, in, in a certain way. I'm going to keep pushing this on you. That's also selective, right? So who speaks, whose voice you want to accept, whose narrative you want to accept. And this is why I'm trying to tell you that I don't necessarily believe that Pardeep is wanting to be heard. My opinion wanting to be heard. My opinion, in addition to wanting to be heard, being accepted. Because remember, every single time I speak, if I speak in public and somebody has to public, they have to also see my turban and my pigmentation. Mm-hmm. And remember, we're talking about this concept of neutrality and non-neutrality? So that I am already starting off somewhere. Right. Let alone what I got to say. And then if I do say it, now there's a disruption and disconnect because they're trying to figure out how is this guy so articulate and why does he speak good English? And they're waiting to tell me I speak good English. And I'm trying to hear having a conversation. Yeah. But they're, they're, they want to say something to me. And do you see? Do you see all the layers of that narrative that have to get done? I'm not. I'm not at all questioning the validity of conversation because I agreed with you. I told you the way I see it right now is curve to curve. And and if I have to, I won't do it from a curve. So I'm just like you. I won't do it curve to curve. I will at least come to the center, mm-hmm. and I'll ask them to come to the center because I want them to know that we're allowed to disagree and still being able to shake yeah. hands and go and play a soccer game or do whatever we need to do. Yeah. I agree with that. 
Okay, because my, my process is exactly what you're saying. Because the piece that you were talking about here was we're so polarized that the process is just a yelling match. I agree whole, wholeheartedly. But that is only where that context relatively allows and can be in a safe space and stuff. Because I can get further marginalized because I can go there, go there, yeah. come close and someone might It's a risk. You take a risk, a risk every time right? you do that. Because mine will be go home and I'm going going home to where? Toronto, Malton? Where, <laughs> where, where, where do you want me to go, right? Yeah. And, and, and I know where they're relative meaning and stuff like that and they'll be more agitated and stuff like that. And so there's, that's why it's not necessarily neutral in that space because I don't get to come into this conversation uh, sometimes as, as a relative equal as part of that piece. But it doesn't negate the root and the root is what I'm trying to get at because like I said that's a bandage because if we don't get to the root we will be having this conversation 20 years from now 30 years from now 80 years from now if the system that is producing that division because we're always relatively going to have divisions but is how can we through education and narratives and conversations minimize that to that I can look up for you and I can empathize on your work situation you can empathize on my race situation I can empathize on your uh, socioeconomic status and you can empathize on something else and back and forth and still also know that we got work to do and we got a nation to build yeah. and we have civic responsibility and all that stuff yeah okay those are important well I I, re- I respect and appreciate the fact that I, I think you very much are um, I'm, first of all you're living it and you're living it in action and but you're also playing the long game and I agree that education and being able to get ahead of this stuff with, you know, the next generation before it even takes root in the way that it does with us. That's actually critical because many of us, it might be, it might just take insurmountable amounts of effort to make a real difference at this point, or it's just not going to make enough of a difference, but we have an opportunity to avoid the pitfalls. So I fully a hundred percent mad respect to you for what you're doing. Look, you've been very generous with your time for the, before we kind of wrap up what's next for you. The good fight continues. Well, I don't, I don't see myself. I, I think I shared those four words that I started off with is just how I define myself. And, and that's not defined for a decade or a piece. I used to have a quote on my office and said, I don't remember the gentleman's name right now, but it sounded something like, I believe that my life belongs to the community and you can substitute it to the country or town or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that... It's an honor to do for it anything I can do because the more I kind of work, uh, the more I live. And and so I will continue to keep challenging myself personally and professionally as well. And in that, I will continue to grow. Um, and so those are some of the foundational pieces for what lies ahead. And, um, and I trust in that process that uh, hopefully I'll continue to be able to make a difference uh, in people's lives and inspire people. Well, speaking of healing, uh, I, I was a little bit surprised uh, when you rolled up and I saw you on crutches. Uh, I'm wishing you speedy recovery. Like you <laughs> tore your ACL playing football. Uh, yeah, football. I tore my Achilles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, definitely for everyone listening, go check out the movie Tiger. It is telling a, an incredible story of an incredible man, but also a story that's just much bigger than you know you your, yourself are. And I, I think that this is a really important time i just love that this is happening I'm, I'm really excited about it where can people find out more about you if uh, they want to look more into you and your so work i and- finally kind of did it because you can always have googled my name and stuff and and you can see articles either i've written articles about me 
or articles that speak to some of the things like, you know, I've, I've been a huge ally advocate, leading voice av- ally uh, uh, for the removal of prerogative indigenous mascot uh, and logos and stuff like that and a whole bunch of other pieces. But I kind of have a website now and it's pardeep.ca. Uh, Amazing. Relatively simple and just helps because of things like this now for people just to quickly, you know, either find me, connect with me or just see and learn and have some nice fun places there about my musing so you can learn about my cars or my fascination with Adidas or why <laughs> why I'm a devil trying to turn over a new leaf um, and a lot of other f- neat things uh, uh, about me. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. No, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. And that's a wrap. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.